0: I've noticed, and I bet you have as well, a, a common conversation in Montana. It begins like this. Someone will ask you, what do you do to get, and this is the key word, to get through the winter, right? In other words, what we're really asking, what we really want to know is how do you, how do you not go mad, spiral into a state of gloom and despair as the cold and the dark Drag on and on and on. It seems like maybe we don't have to worry about that this winter. I wonder, though, if our approach, our approach to dealing with the coldness and the darkness of winter, can describe the general approach that many have toward life. That really, that many are just trying to cope with and get through pain and the anguish and the darkness that fills life and so people go from one distraction to the next and we know yes winter does give way to spring and then summer so in one sense many all of us we can join together and say that brighter warmer days are ahead but in the bigger picture Bigger than just the passing and the changing of seasons, where it's all headed. I wonder how many of our neighbors can confidently say that their future is bright. Something to look forward to. More likely, they'll say, I think it all depends. It depends on the stock market. It depends on if my career advances. It depends on how that conflict over there turns out. We'll say it depends on my health. It depends on if my kids are successful and will make me happy and proud. I think it's good to consider what are you depending on this morning and to ask is that arrow going up? Is it going down? Is it, has it flatlined? Right, and if you've been with us the past two weeks, if we as we've studied these names, these, these four titles of Christ that the prophet Isaiah uh, gives to us, you, you know the answer he gives. Right? For Isaiah, the future is bright because of who has been given to those who are unable, who are unfit to escape their own anguish, their own misery, their own darkness, so as we continue in our series, we're looking at the third name, the third title of Christ, Everlasting Father. And So turn with me to Isaiah 9, and we'll read again verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So it's understandable, I think, to be confused with this, this name, this title. We hear everlasting Father and we, we, we think what? We think well, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. We know God the Father. He is eternal. He is everlasting. And so as we read this, we, we, we think, well, I'm not quite sure why Isaiah is bringing up the first person of the, the Trinity here, but well, I guess that's what he's doing. Well, I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't believe that that's the best interpretation, how we should read this. That this isn't a title. This title is not a, a reference to God the Father. And we can safely say that because, well, that just doesn't really fit the context. And remember, we always want to interpret, understand a passage in its context the way that the original author intended it to be read. And what Isaiah is doing here is unpacking, right? He's speaking about the child, the son, who is one day going to sit and inherit the throne. Of David. And so in this passage, his intention is to unfold to us the mystery of who Christ is, this future Messiah. And that's the purpose of all four of these names, these titles. They all serve to advance and they and they deepen our knowledge of Christ. Each adds something more to our understanding of, of who he is. And what his kingdom is like. They tell us how he's going to relate to his people. And how he's going to preside over this everlasting kingdom. And so to get at what everlasting father is all about. I want us to see, I want us to see its opposite. I want us to see what it is not. And I want us to look back at an earlier episode in Israel's history. And if you remember, please tell me you do, our, our, our study of King Solomon, remember that one? Yes, it ended, we ended with his death. But after his, his death, if you know the history, that's when the kingdom of Israel began to split apart. That's when, that's when division erupted. And you know that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he reigned over the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, while this man named Jeroboam led the northern tribes. But there was, there was this brief moment, there was this opportunity shortly after Solomon's death for reunification. Right? All the king's horses and all the king's men, they had a chance to put it all back together. And when Rehoboam was being made king, We're told that Jeroboam and other men of Israel came to him and they made him an offer. They appealed to him and they said, Your father, Solomon, he made our yoke heavy. And so they asked, Lighten the hard service of your father and the heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. It sounds reasonable. It's one of those offers you, you couldn't refuse. And we're told the older men in Rehoboam's camp, two cheers for the older men, they gave Rehoboam wise counsel. Right? They told him to honor this man's request and ease up. But the younger men in Rehoboam's circle, so students, be careful about listening to the counsel of your peers The younger men in Rehoboam's circle told him to double down. That was their idea of how Rehoboam would prove himself as a man. He'd be even more demanding, even less generous than his father. And so when Jeroboam and his men return and they come to hear Rehoboam's decision, they are sadly told that their yoke would be heavier that service to him would be even more unpleasant. And whereas Solomon disciplined them with whips, Rehoboam promised he'd discipline them with scorpions. That's probably a reference, probably a way to say that his punishment would be lethal. You see the sad irony? Here is, there's Solomon, Israel's wise king, David's privileged son. And for all the good that he did and, and with all the wisdom that he had, we see that he was really like a pharaoh to his people. Right, here were God's people living in the land that God had given them. And Solomon had turned it into an Egypt. Right, because Solomon related to his people as a taskmaster, that he was domineering, right? he was unrelenting in his demands and unmerciful in his discipline. And his son, as king, thought it best to take, to take it up a notch. You see, what Israel was missing was a king, was a leader who made life better, A king who alleviated burdens. And not all were terrible, not every moment was unbearable. But when you look at their history, overall, Israel never had the kind of leader, the kind of king that you would want as a father. And so for Isaiah to say Christ is everlasting father means that in his kingdom, his people have a king who eases burdens, right? who gives a light yoke. Right? Christ is the kind of king who delivers the needy, who has pity on the weak. Right? We know a father is to provide rest for his children. He is to forgive. A father is about showing compassion, about understanding the the weaknesses, and sympathizing with those weaknesses. A father is someone who listens to the cries of his children and answers their calls for help. And Christ, we know, does all of those things endlessly. Christ is eternally consistent in his care, in in his compassionate treatment, of his people and as that kind of king he makes our service to him enjoyable right not something to run away from or dodge but something to give ourselves to more and more and more i think one way to think about what isaiah is doing here in this prophecy is to think of these names these titles as a way to know whether someone is truly this promised son of David. So these titles are are like fingerprints. In other words, when the Messiah comes, Isaiah is saying, you'll know. Because wherever he goes, he'll imprint. He'll leave behind the evidence that unmistakably makes himself known. If we know what to look for, Isaiah is saying, you'll be able to know when this child has been born, when this son has come. And we know certainly Jesus left people speechless with his wisdom and his knowledge. His, his, un- his knowledge was unexplainable. People were always asking, where did this man, this man of this humble background, learn all of his wisdom? And so clearly Christ He proved himself to be wonderful counselor. And obviously his death, his his resurrection revealed that he's unlike any warrior before him. Because no one battled a greater enemy, no one had a more important consequential victory, and no one did it more alone than Jesus. So no doubt, he was mighty God. But without diminishing those other titles, I think we can say it was his compassion, it was, it was his, his mercy, right? his love. The way that he went about releasing men and women from their burdens and setting them free from their bondage. Right? The way that we see him moving toward, not away from, but moving toward sinners. Sinners. Right? The helpless, the hungry, the sick, the unclean. Those are all the things that are bound up in what it means to be everlasting Father. So consider just a few examples. And later today, maybe, maybe just start reading through a gospel and just notice the number of places that we're told about Christ responding in compassion to the needs that he came across. There's the example of what Christ did in the town of Nain. If you remember, a widow had just lost her son, leaving her even more vulnerable and helpless. And we're told that as Jesus drew near to the city, he saw this mother. And we're told he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And he restored the son to life and gave him back to his mother. Or consider the time when Jesus went off to a desolate place. Only to be followed by the crowds who came needing him. Came to make requests of him. And we're told that when Jesus saw the great crowd that had pursued him all the way into this desolate place. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Right, consider the time that Jesus made his way into Jericho, right, on his way to very important things. And two blind men, two men who are without name, they cried out for mercy and were told that Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And when Peter was visiting with a family of Gentiles, we're told in the book of Acts that Peter summarizes his Lord's life by saying he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Prince, think about in your own life, where the compassion and the mercy and the tenderness of Christ has been Especially real to you. And the fact is, is if you are a Christian, it is not because of how intelligent you are or what an asset you are to the church, to Christ's kingdom. It is because of his pity on us that he would look upon us with compassion and tenderness. You know, you think about how the Bible begins. It begins with Adam, right, the father of the human race, right, whose sin, whose selfish choice subjected all of his descendants to live in misery and suffering. As you work through Scripture, you find a very few good examples of what it means to be a father, Right, David failed to protect his daughter Tamar. He refused to discipline his son Amon. He was never completely reconciled to Absalom. And from what we just learned about Rehoboam, clearly Solomon left his son a poor example. Right, throughout the Bible, we see inattentive fathers. We see fathers who show favoritism that then just breaks families apart. And like fathers, we see many failures of leaders, right? Leaders who are are faithless, who protect their own interests, who use their authority and their position to enrich themselves. Leaders who are without mercy and devoid of compassion. And what is sad is we know that those in authority over us, they affect the conditions we live in. And while we can be thankful for good authority, we know that sin always affects our human authorities and that none will rule perfectly. From parents to government, all are affected by sin. But we also have to confess that because of our own sin, we aren't capable of ruling over our own lives well. But what we attempt to do time and again, is to create the conditions all on our own, the conditions that we think will take away our misery and our suffering. You see, in Isaiah's day, as he is giving this prophecy, those in authority were trying to secure their own safety through military alliances. Right? Ahaz, the, the king of the southern kingdom, was looking to a foreign power for his protection. Rejecting the word that the Lord had given to him. Deciding he could do better. That he could make a better decision than trusting the Lord. Friends, there's only one ruler. And you aren't him. Who creates the conditions we long to live in. So friend, what is it that you believe is the answer to evil? Right? What do you believe is the remedy, the fix to your misery? How many think it's to turn the TV up, to pour another drink, to wander the internet, to make another purchase? And yet, why is it we can't escape our anguish to find our way out of the darkness it's because the evil of the world and the depth of our own sin and the misery it produces require someone who is eternal, everlasting in his compassion, in his mercy, in his love to come. You can't give yourself the happy conditions you long for. You can't answer the needs of, Of your soul. Our capacity to love and to be merciful is broken. And so you can't earn your way out of your misery. You can't purchase your way. You can't party your way out. You can't accept yourself enough. You cannot love yourself out of your misery, right? Our love is too polluted by sin. But Christ, the everlasting Father, loves us out of our misery. You notice most Christmas movies, it seems, have a father who desires to shower his family, to make Christmas special, to even go without for the sake of his children, Right, a father who is willing to be denied to make his children happy. You see, to make his people happy, to save them from their misery, Jesus on the cross was saying to his father, he was saying, deny me the mercy that I have shown to everyone that I have met. Right, deny me your love that I have known forever. He was saying, deny me what I deserve so that my people can receive. He said, give them my share. Give them my share and I'll I'll take theirs. Friends, this morning, our hearts aren't longing for what we deserve. Right, deep down, if we're, if we're quiet enough, if we can be still long enough, we know our hearts are longing for something else. Right, our deepest cry, when we look over our lives and we see our faults and we see our inconsistencies and we see our sins, our deepest cry is that we would be spared that someone who knows all of those faults, who knows all of those secrets, would answer us with mercy, that he would take pity on us and give us something better than what we have earned. See, the cry of your heart is that the one with all authority the one who will make the final judgment, the final assessment of your life, our cry is that he would be like a father who's willing to be denied for the sake of his children. You know, many in Isaiah's day, as he preached, as he warned the people, persisted in unbelief. They believe that their best hope rested on their shoulders. And how many today continue to believe that they can push the darkness out of their lives? How many are going from one answer to the next, thinking it will solve their anguish? But in Isaiah's day, there were also some who put their hope and this child that Isaiah spoke about, who would come as everlasting father. And for those people, even as the darkness of the world was around them, even as the nation crumbled and would be invaded and overrun, even as those people suffered in this life, Because of the place where they put their hope in this son, these were people who were not overcome. They were not defeated. And they did not live in fear, but lived as a witness to those around them. Friends, our hope is in this son. That whatever may come, and whatever may befall you in this life, whatever suffering that you are dealing with this morning, the one who reigns over every galaxy, every atom, and every square corner of this world is the one who comes with the perfect love of a father to spare his children. He is the everlasting father, which means that Christ's love won't change for 10,000 years and forevermore, Christ will love his people, and his love for you will not change. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in our worship, we ask that our hearts would treasure your love that you would give our souls rest, that you would fill us with gladness, that you would help us to praise your name together as the people who are saved by your blood. We pray in your name. Amen.